All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. W. Joseph Campbell is a professor at the School of Communications at American University. He is the author of six nonfiction books, including Getting It Wrong, 10 of the Greatest Misreported Stories in American Journalism. But just this year, he came out with an excellent new book called 1995, The Year the Future Began. As soon as I heard about this book, I bought it and read it because, as you know, if you've been listening to this show, 1995 was a seminal year, especially for internet history. In fact, the conceit of this project, of course, is that the modern internet era as we know it began in 1995. So I was thrilled to talk with Dr. Campbell about how 1995 became the year that the internet entered the mainstream. We also talk a lot about a lot of the other events from 1995 that made that year such a watershed for recent American history, even beyond technology. Dr. Campbell's book is highly recommended by me, so I do encourage you to give it a read yourself. Again, it's called 1995, The Year the Future Began. Here's our conversation. W. Joseph Campbell, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Well, thank you for your invitation. Uh, so today we're going to talk about um, this excellent book that has just come out that you've written um, called 1995, The Year the Future Began. And um, basically for the last year on this on this podcast, we've been talking about the events of 1995. So I thought it would be uh, you'd be an excellent person to, to talk to. Where did you get the uh, basic idea for this book, this idea of 1995 as, as a pivotal year? It's a very good question, and thanks again for the invitation. The um, the idea was one of uh, had been on the back burner, as it were, for for quite a while. I remember at the end of 1995 when Newsweek magazine came out with its year-end cover story, and it declared on that cover story, in that cover story, that 1995 had been the year of the internet, and uh, and in in many respects it it, it was, and and. Uh, so that, that Newsweek article sort of stuck in the back of my mind, and as I worked through a couple of other book projects, including one on 
media-driven myths. That book came out five years ago. Once that book was was wrapped up, I was uh, you know I was looking for the next project, and and uh, the 20th anniversary of 1995 was was uh, was approaching. And so about five years ago, I got going on this project. And the more I looked into it, the more I looked into 1995, the more evident that it became that it really was a critical watershed year. I don't make the claim in the book that it changed everything. It wasn't a year that changed everything. But it certainly was an important year, a watershed year in many respects, including the rise of the Internet, the emergence of the Internet into public mainstream consciousness. And uh, it, it was very clear that 1995 was a pivotal moment in that regard in terms of people understanding that there was something called the Internet and this was going to be potentially very big. Right, because that's kind of the key to, to remember uh, if, if you weren't there at the time. It's not that the web, that the Internet certainly wasn't invented in 1995 and not even the web was invented. It was somehow it was the year when the web and the internet crested in a way that that it was it was a thing for normal people for mainstream people it it entered the mainstream that's right it there was a a critical mass of sorts that was reached in 1995 and the web the internet both became household words and almost everyone by the end of 1995 had heard about the internet had heard about the world wide web not everybody was online, far from it, in 1995. But it was very clear that the, the, the movement from the domain of, of academics and techies had really taken place by the end of 1995, and that, that was the year in which, uh, as I say, it entered mainstream consciousness. And it's also very interesting to note, too, that some of the mainstays of the digital landscape, prominent players to this day of the digital landscape, do trace their origins, trace their derivations to 1995. Amazon started selling books online in 1995. eBay, the predecessor to eBay, started holding online auctions in 1995. Match.com got going in 1995. The uh, predecessor to Craigslist right. got going in 1995. And, and the list is, is fairly lengthy. Yahoo, um, their 20th anniversary of their incorporation is next week, so that's another one. Um, Very also, good point. That's right. Early uh, March, nineteen ninety-five. I would also add to that list um, things like GeoCities and the Globe, which you know technically would have been founded in nineteen ninety-four. But if you think of those as early predecessors to what we think of social media, um, those basically those companies were incorporated in nineteen ninety-five as well. Good point. And uh, the predecessor to Salon dot com got going in nineteen ninety five. Uh the first uh anemic version of Internet Explorer was introduced mm -hmm. in nineteen ninety five. So it is a very lengthy list. Um one of the things that I found fascinating in my research, but then also you obviously found it fascinating because you put it in the book is this how funny it is to look back and, and read what the media how the media was trying to describe this new phenomenon to mainstream audiences and it's it's weird they they obviously in retrospect it, it looks so funny they're, they're describing it in such a, a naive almost sort of um i don't know naive way but um I, I wonder if you had any perspective on that in in terms of they are describing a phenomenon that people wouldn't really have any context for so obviously it was hard to explain you're very right about that and uh the the ways in which the the media we're describing the the emergent, the early web, 
were not completely wrong. I mean, they seem awkward and quaint to us today, but they weren't entirely off base. They weren't completely wrong. Uh, and, and one of my favorites is from early January 1995 when the New York Times referred to the web as a section of the Internet overflowing with sights and sounds. A section of the Internet overflowing with sights and sounds. Yeah. And fundamentally, that's not inaccurate. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not quite a very polished definition, but it's not inaccurate. And uh, you're right, it, it was very, very difficult for people, for, for journalists, to try to communicate this to, to people who had very limited ideas about what they were talking about. And, and, uh, uh, and, and there were also other colorful terms that, that uh, really didn't catch on, but they were fairly common back in 1995, terms such as internaut, someone who was online an awful lot was and that was a blend, of course, of Internet and, and astronaut. But, uh, so it, it is very amusing and, uh, in retrospect and, and certainly quaint as to how journalists grappled with this emergent technology, the emergent digital landscape, and, and tried to put it in, in terms that laymen would understand. And overall, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It, as I say, it's amusing to this day, but it wasn't inaccurate either. Well, the only the only bone I would pick, though, would and again, maybe this is something that's not anyone's fault. It's natural to be a little suspicious and or nervous about the the new thing. But um, you know, in 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 one of your chapters, you spend a long time talking about how there was this big uh, pornography scare um, when the when the internet starts to go mainstream. And and I've been doing research a lot recently around e commerce, and I could I could come up with a thousand articles. Of uh, that are like, you know, um, your credit card could get stolen, your identity could get stolen. All these things that these scare stories about the internet as well. Indeed, there were many scare stories about the internet, and, and Time Magazine devoted a cover story in in uh, July 1995 to cyber porn, and and um, the story essentially said the 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 web, the internet was awash with pornography, and it, it really wasn't, and. And the web, um, people who were online back then um, demonstrated one of the enduring features of the online world in, in the sense that they could quickly take on and debunk that kind of stuff. And, and Time's story was, was exposed to the withering exposés of, of online critics, and, and they had to walk that back very quickly. And um, it was, a, as I say, an early demonstration of, of the power of the Internet, the power of the online world to, to debunk shoddy reporting. And also at the time, in, in, in the mid-'90s, journalists were, uh, prominent journalists in particular, were poo-pooing the potential of the web, saying, well, you know, it's a small, nobody's online, nobody's getting their news from from." digital sources, it's going to remain pretty small for a long time. And they took comfort in that. And, you know, much to their, to their later chagrin, because, uh, you know, the web in, in a few short years really did take off and started eating into, eating into the, uh, to the audiences that the traditional mainstream media had developed over the years. So there was a certain laxity and a certain misplaced comfort that, that prominent journalists were, were finding at the time in the fairly small size of, 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 the, uh, of the web and the web audiences. They didn't recognize the disruptive potential, the dynamic nature of the Internet, even in the mid-'90s, even in 1995. You know, part of what's fun about researching this era is, is the sense that no one really knows what's going on. <laughs> no one really knows where this is going. And 
So there are, you know, you can cherry pick all sorts of of quotes where where people get it wrong. But unfortunately, we've got poor uh, Cliff Stoll, who I think <laughs> I think a lot of people might not know the name, but like you say, his his unfortunate prognostication pops up every couple years on the on the web because unfortunately he got everything so wrong but i read it i read it again recently <laughs> again not to pick on him but the thing about that particular uh, i'll put it in the show notes for this it's called um the internet bah and where did he publish that he published that in newsweek magazine on the in the issue dated 27 February 1995, and it was kind of an accompaniment or a summary of of a book that he brought out in 1995 called Silicon Snake Oil, and Silicon Snake Oil even had more predictions that were wayward and and misguided and proved to be quite inaccurate. Uh, they were all pretty jaw dropping, frankly. Yeah, and again, I I'm not meaning to pick on him. You know, if any one of us, if asked to give predictions, would would look stupid 20 years on, but. At least I I haven't read the book, but at least that article, I didn't feel I I really did feel like he was being contrarian, and sort of just um, fussy for no good reason. It was it, it wasn't it was it didn't feel like a thought out um, reason why he was predicting this was all going to crash and fail. Could be he does say in that article in the Newsweek article his essay that he wrote uh, that that uh, he had been online for twenty years for for two decades and. And he had met a lot of great people, and even caught a hacker or two, and and uh, but but felt that it was really a, a very oversold uh, oversold idea, full of hype and and uh, and trivia, and you couldn't find anything online if you wanted to, you know, to to, to do so, and and uh, you know, he, some people he said were were predicting we'd buy newspapers and stuff online, and he was dismissing that and book selling online, he dismissed that and said it was a a uh, huge ocean of unedited content, and yeah, maybe it was for a while, but uh, you know, he failed to anticipate the the, the emergence of, of Google. I mean, not every, not not many people did predict Google's emergence, but you know, it it, it it's part and parcel of the dynamic nature of of, uh, of the internet, and uh, so he he approached this as a contrarian for sure, but as as a as a veteran of the web and had seen. In the academic circles, how how this had been used, and 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 it really wasn't wasn't all that appealing. He, he thought for for a broader audience, he happened to write. His his timing was exquisitely bad because he happened to write right at the moment when the when the web is taking off and entering the mainstream consciousness, and and uh, and it wasn't very very much longer before Amazon started selling books online, which he predicted probably wasn't going to happen. It wasn't much later that. The two founders of Google got together in the Stanford University campus, and and that collaboration led to a search engine that that could make sense out of the largely unedited content of the World Wide Web. So he he was out there in a big time way, not only in the Newsweek article, but in his book Silicon Snake Oil. And and uh, not many people uh, with his background were were making such bold predictions, and uh, and and they proved to be largely misguided well and he's he's cer- he certainly wasn't alone among veteran technologists either as, as listeners of of this show know you know my own personal theory for why microsoft for example was caught flat-footed by by the emergence of the internet was not that bill gates couldn't conceive of what a revolution networked computing would would bring it's that he didn't think that 
the internet as it existed, the web as it existed was, 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 uh, broadband enough or evolved enough and so he he thought it was coming but it would come later when we were more in a broadband era the thing that everyone seems to have missed except for people like mark andreessen and and the, the the kids at ncsa was that the web was good enough and you didn't have to wait sure it wasn't perfect at first searching obviously didn't get fixed till four or five years later but it was good enough to start the revolution now and and Bill Gates kind of missed that. Even Bob Metcalf, as you say in your book, you know, he has the prediction that the internet would collapse because it wasn't sophisticated enough yet. Very good points, and uh, it's indeed the case. And and uh, uh, the 1995 really was a moment when when uh, the internet and the, and the web um, not only were, were were good enough, but people recognized them as the potential as, as possessing the potential for barrier-lowering, micro-targeting platforms that really could facilitate connections uh, among people, among communities that otherwise would really be difficult to achieve. And uh, I think that's another key to, to why the web took off when it did. You're right, it was good enough, but there was also this recognition that, that it could facilitate connections that otherwise would be difficult to make, certainly difficult to make in person. You could do this virtually. You could do this online. And the likes of Clifford Stoll were poo-pooing this sort of thing, but, but uh, the Amazons and the Ebays and the Match.coms recognized that this could be done, and, and, uh, and, and they began to exploit that. But you're also quite right in saying that nobody really knew what this was going to look like in a, in a in a few years, not even Bezos, Jeff Bezos at Amazon.com had any sense that it would become that his company would become the behemoth that it is today. I mean, I have never seen the original plans, but I've they've uh, I've heard that they were far more modest than the than the multi-billion-dollar company that it has become today. Right. Well, Shell Shell Caffin told me that he feels like that the business plan was never really written. <laughs> that in in a sense, uh, Jeff kept saying there was one, but everything kept changing so much, and then eventually they didn't really need one, and they were already running. So um, let, let's talk about, because you identify quite rightly, as as most people do, what I would call the, the big bang of, of the internet as an, the internet era starting was the, the Netscape IPO. Was was the Netscape IPO also just a, a matter of exquisite timing? I mean, Netscape didn't prove to last, but at the same time, it really was a revolutionary company and a revolutionary product. It was, and it was a company with with uh, with senior uh, uh, officials, senior staff who were almost out of central casting. It was it was a great company. It embraced the the flamboyance and the swagger that characterized the early web in, in many respects, and. Uh, I think it was, a, it was a great company, and I, um, you know, it's it, it, it is great in a, set, in a in a perhaps a perverse way too, because it 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 its its rise and fall were so compacted, in a, in a way it kind of defined internet time in in its in its launch in 1994, and its meteoric climb in 1995, and then the browser war that it engaged with with Microsoft. 1995 to 97, and then its then its fall in 1998, and 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 ultimate acquisition by AOL in 1999. Within five years, in less than five years, it went from from startup to hegemony on the web to to almost an afterthought. And and to the and, and nowadays, it's 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 unfortunately 
largely forgotten. But that IPO, you're right, of August 1995 really had the effect of illuminating the web for lots of people, including people who had no clue as to what this was all about. And uh, it certainly grabbed the attention of Wall Street in a way that uh, no other uh, web-based startup had, had ever done. And uh, even to this day, Netscape is something of a standard against which other digital IPOs are, are measured. Not so often, but occasionally it is invoked as, as something of a standard. And uh, they had been contemplating it. The, the, uh, the top officials at Netscape had been contemplating an IPO for several months before they actually did it. And um, they may have been motivated in part by what Microsoft was going to be doing later that month when they finally released Windows 95 amid all kinds of hype and hoopla. And um, the early August IPO that, that Netscape scheduled was, uh, in a way, uh, an attempt to, to sort of steal the thunder, I think, of, of Microsoft. There, another, another appealing aspect of, of, micro, of, of Netscape was the rivalry that it had with, with Microsoft. And, and they were swaggering. They thought that, you know, that this startup company could take on the Goliath of, of, of Microsoft. They had limited respect for those guys. It was it's another element of the delicious nature of the rivalry between these two companies. And um, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that Netscape has been, has been as forgotten as it has become. Well, yeah, and, and a different way of looking at it, um, if, if it always seems like it's always this horse race of, of one company is the dominant company. You know, Microsoft gives way to Google, gives way to Facebook, gives way to whoever, you know. So in a, con in, a, in a sort of perverse way, you could also look back on 1995 as the high watermark of Microsoft because that's the year of Windows 95 when absolutely Microsoft is dominant in, in all of technology. It stands like a colossus across any any facet of technology that you can think of. But it's also that year that begins, the obviously, the, the, the bad behavior that leads to the U.S. government suing them for antitrust, which you could argue then um, sort of hobbles them, makes them lose their focus, and and sort of leads them to the position that they find themselves in today. So I think it's funny to look back that, in a way, that's the high watermark of Microsoft as as a dominant company. That's a very interesting interpretation. I, I uh, don't completely buy it because. The company Microsoft was so slow to to pick up on 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 the promise and, and prospects of, of the web and and you mentioned a little earlier how Bill Gates was 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 slow to to recognize the the potential he was he was, he had a book that came out in 1995 and it was talking about how you know the internet would be like one component of this vaster more sophisticated uh, information superhighway he was he was not looking at the at the web. Was not really looking at the internet as a central element of of, of the digital landscape until much later in 1995. Well, right, yeah. and ironically, as again listeners to the show know, there's two versions of that book. If you get the original hardback, yes, version, that's right. And you look at you look at the index. There's only a few mentions of the web, but then the the, the paperback a few months later, all of a sudden, there's tons of mentions of the internet and the web. So you're right. It, it, it's a bit sneaky in that sense, but the uh, the hardcover I think is the one that. that mm. uh, deserves to be looked at in, in terms of the thinking of Bill Gates, uh, at least as, as 1995 uh, unfolded. 
And, you know, uh, Apple was, was a mere shadow of itself uh, in, in 1995. And, and uh, when Windows 95 was released in August of 1995, you know, Apple was out there saying in a very <laughs> overlooked campaign, essentially, that, hey, we're doing, we, we've done everything that, uh, that Windows 95 can do. We've been doing this for years. Mm-hmm. But, but nobody really was paying much attention because it commanded, like, you know, 8 or 10% of the computer market at that time. So, um and, and it wasn't long before Steve Jobs uh, returned to, to Apple and, 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 and set that company back on the, on the right course. So there's a lot going on. I mean, it's a very dynamic time, 1995. And, uh, um, you know, and Microsoft uh, gets religion and, and says the, net, the Internet is, 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 is vital to everything we do. They say that late in 1995, but they, they, uh, they catch on. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, before I let you go, let, let's use technology to, to lead us into com- some of the other big themes from 1995 that, that your book touches on. Um, one of the things that you pointed out, uh, which I was unaware of, was that the, the Oklahoma City bombing was sort of, in a way, one of the first major stories that, that the web gets to cover. That's, that's true, and, and uh, it, it's, it's still a very much traditional media landscape. In, in April 1995, when the uh, Oklahoma City bombing uh, takes place, when the federal building in that city is, is, is bombed without warning and it kills 169 people. But I think, I think USA Today, for example, its online site had been up for maybe two or three days and it got, you know, it, it, it you know, rose to the challenge in, in some ways for, to, uh, to, to report on this as a, as a supplement, as an adjunct, if you will, to, to the main um, traditional coverage of the, of the newspaper. But uh, uh, even the Oklahoma City newspaper, uh, almost inadvertently uh, backed into a way to get some of its content from the Oklahoma City bombing online, both photos and and text. And uh, it, it was really not planned that way, but, but someone sort of stepped up and said, hey, I could put this stuff online. Would you mind doing so? And, and the editors sort of said, yeah, why not? We'll have a, we can get a web presence without really having a web presence. And that's essentially what it was. So it was the... <laughs> The, the newspaper there backed into to going online, and uh, but it was it was a it was a web presence, and um, 
another major story of 1995, the uh, O.J. Simpson trial and the verdicts in early October 1995, probably was the last major news event in the United States in which the web did not play a major role as, as, a, as a provider of the news. People gathered around television sets. They gathered around radios. Um, you know, they got the news word of mouth. They wanted to know. The country essentially for maybe 10 or 15 minutes on the 3rd of October, 1995, shut down. They waited for the verdicts of the O.J. Simpson trial to be announced in, in court in Los Angeles. People wouldn't get on airplanes. News conferences on Capitol Hill were postponed. Not knowing was just an impossible position for people. So they gathered around television sets, they gathered around radios, and, um, and got the news of the verdicts that way. The Internet really wasn't a major source for for the news of the, of the Simpson trial verdicts at that time. Although, I, as I said, I think it was one of the last major events, major news events in the United States in which it wasn't, the web wasn't a big player. Right. And yet, um, several, several people that we interviewed uh, that worked at Time Warner on their Pathfinder site uh, told us that, ironically enough, that the, the thing that really helped their site take off was they had an OJ Central section where people could uh, basically debate in forums about the, the, that day's OJ news, and that that it, the traffic numbers were taking off like gangbusters. But then the Time Warner executives got nervous because they didn't enjoy this sort of unfettered controversy bouncing around on their pages, so they kind of shut it down. Fascinating. That's yeah. a fascinating. Story. It's a great anecdote and, and suggestive of how uncertain news executives were about this. This, this 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 newfangled medium and uh, and and how to control it, how to you know how to bring it under some sort of control, and um, yeah, that's a that's a fascinating anecdote. But the numbers that that were uh, uh, associated with the uh, television coverage of, of the Simpson trial, the verdicts anyway, absolutely astounding. I mean, there are no really solid good numbers, but the best estimates out there, on the order of a hundred million people tuned in at least for a few minutes on the afternoon or Eastern time afternoon of, of the 3rd of October to get the verdicts. And, and those are just huge audiences, unimaginable today. Yeah, and, and to that end, and this is just speculative on my part, but I wonder if, if you would feel like that year of the OJ trial sort of ushered in the modern cable news um, environment as we know it, because it was something where I don't remember, like, say, in Gulf War One they would usually just report the news. They wouldn't constantly have this revolving band of talking heads and pundits that would come on. But the OJ trial demanded that. You would bring on this uh, lawyer to give his side and this lawyer to give her side and debate this evidence and that evidence. And so that I, I don't know. I, I almost feel like maybe that that created this modern infrastructure of punditry that you see now everywhere on cable news so that, you know, two, three years later when you have the Lewinsky scandal, that, mm. that, that's the model that, that, was, that was put in place by O.J. It's an interesting theory. I um, do not embrace it uh, necessarily. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the cable news environment had been uh, in place for many years uh, before, the, before 1995 and before the Simpson trial. And um, uh, you know, CNN was, was making use of, of experts uh, in, in uh, a big-time way Routinely, uh, well before the well before the OJ trial, 
So I, I kind of resist that, that interpretation. Where I uh, find lasting consequence from the Simpson trial was not in, in, in any breakthrough in American jurisprudence. The trial had very little effect in, in, in that regard, but it did have an effect in introducing to the mainstream the potential of forensic DNA, the potential of DNA to make a decisive difference in, in criminal trials. And until then, I mean, DNA was uh, DNA in, in uh, DNA typing had been around for quite a while, but it had never really been used in a high-profile criminal trial in the United States before the OJ trial. And um, and and that was really the, the DNA sections or segments of the trial were some of the most boring portions of the whole proceedings, and yet they had a lasting consequence of, of introducing the potential for DNA evidence and what it could do. In, in criminal trials, and it also anticipated and, and perhaps even uh, stimulated uh, the interest in in CSI type programming, which is pretty common on on primetime television to to this day. So the the popular interest in in, in DNA and, and what it could do was was certainly stimulated and, and propelled by the Simpson trial. So we can we can thank OJ for CSI Miami and and uh, <laughs> Law and Order and all those great shows. Well, one more one more uh, key point from 1995 that I, I wanted to get you to comment on was, um, you know, that's the year that the the Newt Gingrich and the Republicans um, take control of Congress for the first time in in four decades, and you know, 20 years on, it's hard to remember that that really was almost like the 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 last bell tolling for the legacy of of the New Deal and and the you know the the decades that that the Democrats sort of had control of Congress. But I also wonder, you know, probably, probably these era of of hyperpartisanship that we're in now. Maybe it's always been this way, and and people just remember it differently. But would you feel like 1995, which would have been the year of the the government shutdown fight um, and things like that, was that the beginning of the the sort of hyperpartisan gridlock era that that we know today? I do make that argument in, in the book. I, I, I shift it slightly to the start of the Clinton-Lewinsky uh, dalliance, their sexual relationship that, that began during the first government shutdown in 1995, the, the one in mid-November. And uh, if, if not for that shutdown, Lewinsky, who was an unpaid intern at the White House, would never have had an opportunity to get close to Clinton on any kind of sustained basis. But because the shutdown happened, the White House staffers, most of them, had to be furloughed, had to be sent home. And into that breach stepped a cadre of, of unpaid interns, and among them was Monica Lewinsky. And she was assigned to uh, answer the phones and run errands in the chief of staff's office at the White House, which is down the corridor from the Oval Office. And it was because of that proximity to Clinton that, that one thing led to another. She flashed her thong, and he appreciated the look, you know, gave her an appreciative look, and one thing led to another. And, and um, before you know it, they're, they're, um, they're carrying on in uh, sort of the private study and um, back corridors of, uh, near the Oval Office. And um, that relationship, which began during the government shutdown in 1995, ultimately led to Clinton's impeachment in 1998 and then his acquittal in the Senate trial in 1999. And it was really the wars of the impeachment uh, and, and, uh, 
and trial that, that I think had the effect of, of really poisoning the, the, the political atmosphere of, of, of separating uh, Republicans and Democrats in, 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 in a very uh, almost hostile way. We see some legacies of that even now, even 15, 20 years, 20 years later. And um, so, the, so the shutdown of, of 1995 uh, did have a contributing effect, but it had the effect of, of bringing together Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, and, uh, and, and that relationship led to impeachment and, and, and the wars of impeachment really helped to poison the partisan environment in the country. And, and we're kind of living with some of those effects to this day. Impeachment wasn't the only reason we have this hyper-partisan uh, political climate, but it is a contributing factor for sure. Well, and there's all of that in great detail, uh, plenty of other stuff. Um, I, you know, ni- you, you argue 1995 is sort of the year that we enter the, the uh, sort of uh, security culture that that we're in today because you know after the the sarin gas attacks in in the subways and after the the Oklahoma City bombing you know uh, Washington DC is no longer an open city all sorts of fascinating details like that I I recommend to everybody it's a fantastic book um excellent read um it's called 1995 the year the future began um so many fascinating things in that year that that um sort of set the stage for for where we are uh w joseph campbell thank you so much for coming on to talk about it well thank you it's been a real pleasure and i've enjoyed it very much if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice there's plenty more great internet history where that came from and if you're a longtime listener then you know what to do to help us out rate and review us on itunes Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.